This is The Other 51. I'm Brian, and this week, my guest is Chris Mikowski, an author and professor at St. Bonaventure University. My guest this week is a professor at St. Bonaventure University's Jandoli School of Communication. He's a colleague of mine. He is an author. He is a playwright. He is a former journalist. He's done basically everything we can do in this uh, profession, and I'm proud to call him a colleague and proud to have him on. Chris Mikowski, welcome to The Other 51. I am delighted to be here, Brian, and the feeling is mutual. What a treat it was to get you snagged onto the faculty <laughs> to come back. So a real treat for us. Ah, uh, thank you. It is it is very interesting being back at your alma mater, your undergrad alma mater as a full time professor, especially when a couple of the people on the faculty taught you. Yeah. Um, but it is, uh, it has been wonderful and it's been great to be back. And, uh, it's interesting cause we're colleagues, but we both work remote. So we've been on campus, I think twice together since, uh, since I got hired. Yeah. It's like two ships passing in the night, um, <laughs> you know, we sort of poke our heads in each other's office. Like, Hey dude, Hey dude. Hey dude. <laughs> <laughs> so, so lots to get at. I know you've got a, you've got a, a new collected book. I mean, you've got a book out every three months, which we're going to talk about uh, at some point anyway. Um, but uh, to start off kind of, how did you get to this spot in your career? Kind of tw- walk me through your, your career path and how you got from wherever you started to where you are today. That's a kind of an interesting question because certainly looking back on it um, as the way a historian might, you know how the story ends, but at the time, nothing seems inevitable. And, you know, what you think you have as a map for yourself is not where life ends up taking you. So, you know, the Chris Mikowski of, of 30 years ago, wanted to be a writer. I'd always wanted to be a writer. Um, and then somewhere along the way, I, like I woke up one day and I was like, oh, gosh, I'm a writer. How'd that happen? You know? And uh, <laughs> it's like, oh, wow, well, that's kind of cool. Um, uh, but really, you know, it was the good old fashioned pay your dues, hard work kind of thing, uh, which maybe sounds elemental, but I'm actually surprised by the number of students that I have these days. And I don't know if this is your experience um, who kind of want that instant success. Like Mm -hmm. maybe they've seen um, internet celebrities who become instantly famous. So like, Oh, that's the way that works. I'm going to go be on ESPN tomorrow. And uh, no, like I had to work hard and, you know, bust my ass, (laughs) (laughs) pay my dues, you know, and work my way up. So what was your your first gig as a writer? I guess the first gig gig, like when I was in high school, I wrote for one of the local newspapers. And uh, when I was in college, I did a lot of campus media. I I was editor of the paper for a couple of years while also doing uh, work for the campus radio station. Got a part-time job at the local radio station. Did that right after graduation. And so, you know, I had this professional writing that was going on and then went and did um, my master's degree at the University of Maine while also then working in a radio station up there. Um, And it was kind of cool. Like radio was one of those things that I just sort of thought I would do for a career. Um, I was good at it. I won a lot of awards. I was newscaster of the year for the state of Maine. um, And it was one of the things that I, I didn't love. Like I was good at it, but I didn't love. Okay. And um, so I had the opportunity to go into public relations. And so I did that. 
And uh, that gave me a lot of media experience with uh, magazine writing and feature writing. And uh, so I just was kind of amassing all of this writing experience along the way, along with the master's degree. I got an MFA in playwriting, um, did a lot of work with some community theaters for a long time. Uh, That seems like a whole nother lifetime ago. Um, Started blogging. Um, One of our colleagues, Denny Wilkins, was part of a community blog that I started blogging with. Uh, And so it was just trying a whole bunch of different stuff, always writing. And then the Civil War history sort of is the component of all that that really took off and skyrocketed. And I would say the constant, you know, my last maybe 12 years is really, you know, where that's been concentrated. And that that main that program in Maine, was that in Orono? Yes, it was. I have I've been to Orono several times. I used to cover when I covered uh, Binghamton basketball. They were in the same conference, so oh. I used to make that drive. And I I must say I've never been as cold as I've been in Orono in January. Um, <laughs> that is a different type of cold. It's like Vermont cold. Like it's yeah yeah. It's, <laughs> it is it is cold to the boat. Like there was a month I was up there where it never got above zero. Oh. You know? mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I mean you mentioned that that the a lot of threads i want to pull on this but you mentioned kind of the 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 body of work that you had and the instant gratification and i find it very interesting you know we both teach writers now you know i think the instant gratification there from my perspective it's one of those things that kind of i think feels heightened because of digital and social media, you know, there was always the, you know, in the 90s, I was like, why am I not at Sports Illustrated when I'm 24? But it's a little less heightened now, a little less heightened, maybe, maybe I'm just old and it feels that it feels different now. Um, but I th- what I find interesting about your your kind of body of work is that it is so varied. Like it's, you know, it, it does feel like, and I'd love your perspective on this. It does feel like a lot of students now feel like they have to hyper specialize and kind of have that, you know, brand and quotes or reputation and kind of be hyper focused on what they want to do as opposed to, you know, we had similar kind of paths where you do writing, you do a little bit of broadcast, you do kind of that little bit of everything. And I'm curious if that mix of experiences has that, made you do you think a better writer oh for certain because you know those those writing skills are applicable across all all disciplines and all media uh you have to know how to write for radio is different than writing for the web or writing for magazine versus writing for newspaper i mean there are different styles but you still have to function you know you still have to focus on clarity and conciseness you have to be interesting you have to engage your audience and know what they're wanting and needing and expecting uh and how to surprise them in mm-hmm. those contexts and so so like all those skills uh you know are important i i would say the one skill that maybe doesn't translate in all ways is spelling because on radio it didn't matter how it was spelled so long as i could pronounce it correctly right <laughs> <laughs> as long as you get the name phonetic you're gonna need the name phonetically especially in That's maine right. i imagine some of the town names up there are uh-huh. uh are very french um uh, so how did the civil, so you're, you, I'm looking at you, you have the emerging civil war banner behind you. You've written a lot about the civil war. How did that kind of become your kind of focal point for a lot of your work? 
Yeah, I kind of came into that sideways because uh, when my daughter was 11, she asked if she could start interning at a national battlefield in Fredericksburg, Virginia. And and we lived in Western New York at the time. <laughs> and so so we drove down once a month and, and spent a weekend a month uh, at the park and the park put us up and we volunteered. And, you know, I was there for her. Uh, I didn't really know a whole lot about Civil War stuff, mm. except that she became interested when she was four. And so... You know, in the intervening six or seven years, I came up to speed on it so I could answer her questions and cultivate her interest. So when she started working at the park, I was like, well, I'll volunteer too. And just like, you know, have me paint some signs or something. And they're like, no, we'll put you at the visitor desk and you can get people oriented. And they gave me training. And then they found out like I was a, a communications professor and I know how to write things. So they had me uh, start doing some contract work for them, working on web page content and uh, wrote some publications for them. And that's kind of how that all took off. And, uh, you know, as I started writing and publishing more, I was able to, uh, you know, get my name in front of uh, other editors for, for other publications and they wanted me to write for them. And so that's how that really spiraled. I, I caution people all the time because I don't want to, you know, sell a false bill of goods. I'm a writer first and I happen to write about history okay. as opposed to saying that I'm a historian. What, um, why is that distinction important? Um, I think, well, for two reasons. One, within the discipline, the historians themselves who have got historical training uh, in a formal academic setting um, are perhaps a little possessive or, or territorial. And uh, so I don't want to claim that I've had any of the sort of uh, research experience or training that they've had. But I will say, um, having worked at a, the particular battlefield that I worked at in Fredericksburg in Spotsylvania, um, I got as good an education as a public historian working with the historians on the staff there because you had to learn how to research so that you could give tours. You had to learn how to present all those sorts of things. Uh, and I came with a lot of those skill sets, uh, but doing that within the history context was really important. So what was it about or what is it about the Civil War might be a weird question, but that's so endlessly fascinating. You know, we, you know, it is such a, a well-mined topic and talked about topic. And to continue, it's still obviously generations later, we're still interested in it, finding new stuff about it and talking about it. So from your perspective, kind of along with your daughter's interest, what grabbed you about this, this time, this war, this era in the U.S. in U.S. history? For me, I love a good story. And the Civil War itself is a fantastic story and it's full of lots of fascinating individual stories. Uh, I think the problem is, is many of us were taught history as a bunch of names and dates and places we had to memorize and, you know, you get your index cards out and try to study. And, and when I discovered that really, it's just a really good yarn um, that really changed my perspective on it. And so I'm really interested in the civil war because it's a great story and to, find new engaging ways to tell that story after 160 years to me is a fantastic challenge as a writer. And that's what I wanted to, to ask you, ask you about. So I'd love to expand on it. Like the, the civil war is, I don't want to say well-worn ter territory, but there's, you know, people have been writing about it since, since then. So how, what, how do you address that challenge? How do you find something not necessarily new, you know, or, you know, new, but how do you tell, f figure out ways to take this war that we all know about, however we know about it, and find new ways to interest it? How do you kind of take that, take that challenge on as a writer? Sure, there are kind of two ways. First of all, like, you, there's always new audiences to that 
old story because you know people are being born and aging into an interest in history all the time and so there are always new audiences coming to the story and finding ways that are um, engaging and relevant to a modern audience it's a lot different than it was in the 1960s during the civil war centennial for instance audiences just want different sorts of things so that's one thing and two i think the civil war is still with us in ways that other aspects of our history aren't sure uh, if you're curious about that take a look at the headlines when people start talking about confederate monuments and see how quickly people get emotional about that topic uh or you know talk about slavery as the cause of the war and there are some people who will vehemently deny that despite a wealth of documentary primary evidence right <laughs> to suggest that yes it was about slavery um so so like the war is still with us in a very emotional, visceral sort of way. And and kind of getting building off of that a little bit, like obviously it's an emotional topic and a, and a visceral topic. And how do you kind of find nuance in that? Is there nuance to that? Because you have, you know, there's certainly a, a side that would say there's a good and there's a wrong. And both sides would probably still believe that they were right and the other side was wrong. Very black and white issue. And, of course, the issue of slavery hanging over this. So how do you find – how do you balance all of those kind of ethical issues and finding stories about this war that that is fair and interesting but also kind of takes all that into account? You know, that's the great challenge and the great frustration of what I do because – I think we're living in a particularly black and white time right now. And people look at the civil war in those black and white terms and really sort of inflict present day values on the past. And that makes it really hard to understand the past. Now, if you want to judge the past, fine, but that doesn't do anybody any good. If we're trying to actually understand, it's really important to empathize. So um, to me, I love the fact that there's so much nuance to this story and it's not black and white. And I love to be devil's advocate because someone will say, well, blah, 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 blah. And I say, well, what'd you think about this? And it's not necessarily to disprove them, but just to help them understand that um, the way we think we know the civil war probably isn't the way to know the civil war. There's a lot about the war people think they know, but there's, there's a lot more that they don't know. <laughs> All right. So, so uh, we're going to get to writing in a second. So I have a lot of questions on that, but let me, can I gently push back and you can devil's advocate me? Cause I'm curious about something. So um, the, the, the pushback from my personal beliefs would be the Confederacy was fighting to keep people, black people enslaved and to preserve slavery and the horrors there. So, how do you – I don't want to say push back on that, but like if I were to come to, to bring that as, as my point of view, how do you – how would you kind of – have you considered that to me? Does that make sense? And, and first of all, I would agree with you 100 percent that that is the, the cause of the war and lots of people at the time would, would back that up. But you have a lot of people today who will say, that, well, that wasn't it. It was states' rights. Right. You know, And then it's like, well, the mm. state – the, the right to do what to own slaves you know? <laughs> right right <laughs> um or you know james mcpherson the, the pulitzer winning historian said that there are many causes of the civil war and they're all slavery so <laughs> I, that's I think a good the line key is to just help people understand that there's a lot of nuance and and a lot of of ways you can can think about that um so that's you know what i try to do is just help them unpack it um but, but yeah, I mean, the war is about slavery. Yeah. So um, in terms of, you know, get, getting back to writing, 
uh, confession time. The reason I, I, one of the reasons I had you on here was kind of my own therapy session because you are like the most productive human being I think I know. Um, I mean, I think you've written by last count. I checked your Amazon page, like four hundred and seventy-eight books that you've written slash edited, um, <laughs> something along those lines. So, um, along with teaching, along with all the other things that you do in your life, so. Um, We'll go big picture first and then break it down. But how how do you do it? How do you do all that? So I'll give credit to my former colleague, Pat Vecchio, um, because he once quoted John Lee Hooker, the great blues guitarist. Someone had asked Hooker, um, you know, why is it you play like you do? And Hooker says, it's in me and it gots to get out. (laughs) And that's the best explanation I can come up with for why I write like it's in me and it gots to get out. And uh, you're going to ask my wife, like I get cranky if I go a couple of days without having the chance to sit down and do some writing. Uh, it's very much a part of just like what I have to do. I'm like, I'm compelled. It's a compulsion. I've got to write. Okay. Uh, and writing emails doesn't count. Um, you know, we all have that kind of administrivia we have to do. Uh, like I have to sit down and create. With that, like, what does a writing day, an ideal writing day look like for you? Uh, And this would probably be the ideal that has gone back for me for 30 years since my my first kids were tiny, is everybody goes to bed at 9 or 9.30, and then I start writing. And if left to my own devices, uh, back in the heyday, I'd go to like 2 or 3 in the morning. And then I would sleep for like 5 hours and then get up and, and start you know, my teaching day or something, you know, first class at 10 o'clock or something. Okay. So you're not, you're, you're a late night guy. Yeah, ideally. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. What, what is it about that time that works for you? Uh, I'm uninterrupted. It's peaceful. It's quiet. Uh, my head has churned all day. And so I finally reached a point where I've warmed up. Um, I do have a tough time, you know, like 10 o'clock in the morning, sitting down and focusing and writing like my head's just hmm. not clear enough at that point. I'm not a morning writer at all. Now, you know, back in the days when I was writing under deadline, like the news goes on at 10, you got to be ready. But right. That's, you know, and so, you know, I can perform like a trained seal on command when necessary, <laughs> but, <laughs> you know, to really kind of get the creative juices flowing, I like to settle in at night and go. Right. And so how many projects are you typically working on at once? I mean, are you like a one book at a time person? Do you have like multiple things that you're juggling at the same time? Yeah, I wish I was a one book at a time person. Um, But uh, one of the things that I do with Emerging Civil War is there are 30 historians that are part of the group. And I serve sort of as traffic manager in a lot of respects. Uh, One of our primary you know, very central parts of our mission is that we try to provide a, a forum for new emerging voices in the field. And so that requires a lot of nurturing, a lot of helping people develop their work, their voices. Uh, so I spend a lot of time editing, uh, helping them, you know, with, you know, with 30 different projects. So they've all got book projects or magazines they're working on or blog posts or stuff. So I spend a lot of time that. So that's why I'm kind of juggling lots of projects at once. And then I try to focus on one single project of my own where I'm writing. And then I might have an editing project that I'm doing with that as well. How is the the editing and that kind of work, and we can broaden this out to teaching writing as well, which you've been doing for for a while. How does that improve your writing or how does that affect your writing? I think by looking at someone else's and, and, you know, 
there's the big picture macro editing where you're looking to make sure that there aren't any holes in the manuscript and that things are clear and they've laid things out and they've got a good, interesting story. So of course that sharpens my own eye for those things in my own work. Um, And then just there's sort of the micro editing where you're, you know, copy editing or line editing and, you know, just, I've become much more fluent with punctuation than I (laughs) thought I would ever be. But that also then helps them when I go into the classroom, it's like, I know this punctuation stuff is like eating sawdust. It is boring, (laughs) but it is so crucial to every single thing we do. Like if we don't get this down, nothing else makes sense. We got to do it. So do you uh, you want to talk about your most recent book, Uh, the one that I think came out, was it last month you had an edited project came out? So uh, I'm in the middle of a book series right now. It's the Emerging Civil War 10th anniversary series. And the blog was founded now 10 and a half years ago. And it was a community blog. A lot of different writers have come and gone. Like I said earlier, there are about 30 of us right now. And so to celebrate the 10th anniversary of the blog, I thought like, let's get a a book together that does the best of. And the publisher's like, no, let's do a series of books. That's the best of. (laughs) And, um, uh, and so the third in that series just came out. It focuses on Ulysses S. Grant and Robert E. Lee as they square off in the spring of 64 in a battle uh, in an area known as the wilderness, particularly horrific because it catches fire. Guys burn to death in the middle of the battle. And what starts there it changes the nature of the war, and it leads inexorably 11 months later to Lee's surrender at Appomattox Courthouse. And so the book just sort of collects some of the best essays or blog posts that we've done over the last 10 years uh, that, that touch on that epic struggle. The uh, That series of books, that, that sounds like a thing that, that y- you agree to that that sounds like a great idea. And then three months later, you're like, oh. Spot on. Let me tell you. <laughs> that is, it has been such a time suck because, um, you know, I, there are, I think, a total of, of seven or eight books in, in that'll you know be in the series. And so I'm working on four of them simultaneously <laughs> right now. Uh, so when you asked earlier, like, are you a one project person? Like, <laughs> oh, I wish I had that lecture. Um, because, you know, with, with so many different contributors to each of these volumes if i can keep them working that keeps the ball moving forward so it's really you know like you know making sure everyone's working on their updates of their blog posts and and adding new material and adding footnotes and things and uh, so that's but you know i haven't had the chance to do any writing of my own for a couple months because it's just been super intensive so what was the most recent, uh, I want to say December, you had a book come out or was it February? I'm lost with all the books you have come out, your <laughs> yeah. own. But so, so in December, I had a book come out through the University of Tennessee Press called Decisions of Fredericksburg. Okay. And then in, I think it was February, I had a book, an edited collection come out that was The Great What Ifs of the American Civil War. And then this um, Grant Lee book came out um, in uh, the middle of March. So it's okay. been kind of a busy week. The, um, the book through the university of Tennessee press was an interesting project that I took on just for the opportunity to work with a different publisher. Um, okay. I, I've got two publishers I've typically worked with and uh, just to have the opportunity to work with someone else. 
to give me the experience as a writer to grow and, you know, make sure that I still know how to write for an audience and now that I still know how to make an editor happy and all that kind of stuff. It was a, that was my main reason for taking on that book. And it was two years in the making uh, oh, for wow. an academic press. It's kind of slow going. Yeah. So, um, so what did, were, did you come up with that idea? The Fredericksburg, did they approach you? How did that come together? They approached me. It's a series that, that uh, the press has where they talk about the key decisions of a battle or a campaign. And they had, I think, three or four books in that series up to that point. And they approached me about doing uh, a couple for that series. I just committed to doing one. Um, uh, and it was, a, it was a neat way for me to take a look. And this goes back to something we'd asked, you'd asked me earlier. It was a neat way for me to take a look at a topic that I'd written about a lot that was familiar to me, but the format forced me to look at it in a different way. Okay. And uh, so that was also a lot of fun. It was just, you know, let's challenge some of my own assumptions and see mm-hmm. what else I can come up with. There. So what is it about Fredericksburg specifically that's drawn you a couple times? Um, it's funny cause there are four major battlefields in the area where I live and it's probably the, the battle of the four that, um, I've written the least about. So <laughs> in, in one respect, it was like, well, let me, you know, let me circle around to Fredericksburg again. So here's a chance for me to, to write a little bit more about it. Um, and it was really when I, when I first started my association with this park, you know, 12 or 13 years ago. Let me think it was 16 years ago. Oh my gosh. Um, it was the battle I knew the least about. And so I've probably come the farthest on that battle as well. Okay. Um, so if you were to give a writer listening to this, also me, one productivity advice, like to increase your output, to increase your productivity as a writer, what would it be? Ooh, geez, gosh. Um, drink a lot of caffeine. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I got you there. No, um, yeah, there. Pay attention to your writing environment more consciously than you probably do. Okay. Um, so that you're, you know, a lot of us, I, again, when we're, we're trained to perform on command under deadline, we just have to write wherever we might be at the time, but I'm really particular about, um, paying attention to the environment and your preferences. Uh, so are you a night writer? Are you a morning writer? Do you like a lot of light? Do you like it dim? Do you like a soft, comfy couch? Do you like a hard chair? Do you like music in the background? Or do you like silence? Do you have to have a cup of coffee with you? Or does that interrupt you too many times to go to the bathroom? You know, and like, think about all those things that surround you uh, as you sit down to write and create for yourself the conditions that allow you to do your best work. So what does you, what does your writing environment look like? Your perfect one. Oh, um, well, of course you poked your head into my office. I like a nice dark cave. Mm -hmm. Um, I like lots of stuff crammed into my space. Um, for some reason that actually helps me focus in on my computer. Um, cause I like to be surrounded by my stuff, lots of books, lots of knickknacks. Uh, I, you know, I've got really crazy particular pop culture preferences. And, you know, I've got a collection of the creature of the black lagoon in my office, you know, like, (laughs) so like all the crazy stuff that, that helps kind of speak to my creative side. I love to have it around me. And then I like it dark and I like to uh, work in the evening and I've got to have something to drink and, and and quiet, quiet. Really? Okay. I'm a, uh, I, I, I have a, uh, um, playlist that i made on spotify and it's the artist moby the like dance hip-hop artist i have just him because he it's kind of like you know familiar but not a lot of lyrics so you're not going to sing along and 
Um, it's kind of like that, that tricks my brain. Like, okay, I'm listening to this. It's writing time with when I listen to him. Um, so if also as someone who teaches writing has taught writing for a long time, uh, what is one thing that, uh, a student or a young writer could do today that would improve their writing? I boil everything down to this little catchphrase, take the time to take the walk. Um, in, and I, talk about the walk as a metaphor for writing and we walk around the building several times in a class period and people get tired of it and it's like see but you know the more you walk the more you notice the more time you put in um and and so many students in particular think that they can sit down at the computer and start and you should have that thought out before you ever sit down um you know most of the writing happens before you sit down and then um you know a lot of them are used to back in high school, they could bang something out the night before, turn it in. Oh, I love your work. Here's your A. And like, and like that's not good enough either. Like have your stuff done a couple days in advance so that you have the chance to revise, let it sit for a couple of days and come back with it with fresh eyes. And so it's all about giving yourself the time to do your best work because the more time you put into it, the more time you allow yourself, the better your work's going to be. Uh, and again, you know, as we've mentioned several times, there's always that idea of like, I'm writing under deadline. I don't have the time that happens, but a lot of people then fall back. I'm like, Oh, well, I'm deadline driven. Right. Like, that's BS. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I know what it means to be deadline driven, been there, done that. That's different than, you know, really trying to, pay attention to the art of what you're doing well so and and so much is like you're deadline driven and we do this in journalism because we have to be like the game like i cover a game at seven it ends at 10 deadlines at 10 30 i don't have that's that's a pretty set parameter that i that i'm working with as opposed to well i'm deadline driven so this feature that i've been working on for a week i got to do it the night before or something like that so right right um, so I ask every guest I have on this, the same question. So I'll ask you, what's the best thing you've read lately? Best thing I've read lately. Well, I've been reading so much civil war stuff from other people that when I read for fun, I try to get out of the civil war. So I'm actually on book seven of Harry Potter right now. And that's oh, nice. been my, that's been my uh, project this semester. And I've read it before. I've listened to the audiobooks before. Um, so it's just been fun to revisit Hogwarts. Is, are you reading it yourself or with your boy? I'm uh, reading it myself. Okay. Yep. Yep. Nice. Uh, he's he's five, and so we've watched some of the movies, and you know he's kind of interested in the movies, but there's a lot of plot to those movies too. Yes. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. The the audiobooks, the Harry Potter audiobooks, are special. I mean, they are, they are. so well done. Extraordinary. Um, and then I think before that, I, I re-listened to the audiobook version of Cormac McCarthy's *The Road*, Ooh. which is a book I come back to all the time. It's my favorite book. Uh, okay, I come back to it almost every year. Uh, hmm. It's fantastic. I've, I've yet to read that. Why is that your favorite? Um, I think it spoke to me on a couple different levels. I like post-apocalyptic stuff, but the book is really like a beautiful love story between a father and his son. Okay. And they're in literally the harshest of all possible conditions. And the lengths that this father goes through um, to really be devoted to his son in a world that is literally without hope. And he still keeps trying to help his son keep hope alive. Um, and I, that book came out shortly or, or as I was going through my divorce. And so, you know, it really felt at times like I was in this post-apocalyptic world of my own with my son. Uh, so there was a lot I could take out of it. Uh, but from a writing point of view, I mean, my, 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 uh, McCarthy is just a, uh, 
fantastic writer. And if you're looking for good punctuation, that book will drive you nuts. Fantastic book. Awesome. That's a great note to end on. So Chris, this has been wonderful. Hope to see you on campus at some point in the next year, but otherwise, thanks for joining us this week. Pleasure to be here. Thanks, Brian. Thanks for listening to The Other 51. Show notes for this and all of our episodes can be found at sportsmediaguide.com by clicking on The Other 51 tab. If you like the show, please consider giving it a rating and a review, either at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. It really does help people find the show. Our theme music is by Ellie Moritz.